five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the Space Q Podcast. Today is the fourth and last episode of the Space Q Summer Series. In two weeks, we begin our fourth season. Can't believe we've actually completed three seasons. And we're excited to bring you some great content, including our interviews with today's and tomorrow's future leaders from the space community. Today we have a teleconference from this past Monday, where NASA discussed its early Artemis exploration plans, after earlier in the day releasing its Lunar Exploration Program Overview. On the call are NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, along with Kathy Luders, Associate Administrator for NASA's Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate, James Reuter, Associate Administrator for NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate, and Thomas Zubrucken, Associate Administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate. After short introductory statements, the teleconference was opened up to questions from journalists. It is those questions and the answers which are well worth listening to to gain insights into NASA's lunar exploration plans and, importantly, how they'll get funded. Listen in. Well, thank you, Bettina, and uh, thank you to all of the, the folks who have joined us today on this phone call. Um, and I, I hope you had a chance to read our Artemis plan. Um, I think it's a solid outline of what we will accomplish in the coming years as part of Artemis. Uh, NASA has all the key systems and contracts in place to, to ensure that we are meeting the president's ambitious goal to return American astronauts to the moon for the first time since 1972. Um, and I think that it's important to recognize um, that we, we have strong bipartisan consensus on this effort. Um, the human landing system um, is currently funded, again, for the first time since 1972. Uh, we have a number of contracts that are already in place. Uh, to achieve the, the landing by 2024, um, and we're moving rapidly to, to achieve that. Um, of course, a lot of, a lot of things are happening uh, for that 2024 moon landing to include uh, modernization of the, Kennedy of the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center. Um, of course, our space launch system is, is you know, underway right now. The, the green run is underway right now, and of course, we're going to have a hot fire here in just a matter of weeks. Uh, the Orion spacecraft is complete along with its European service module. Um, we've got the, the commercial human landing systems, which I just mentioned are funded and, and under contract right now. Uh, the gateway is under development. Um, and we've got the next generation spacesuits. So all of the elements that we need for a successful 2024 moon landing are, are underway. And we're moving rapidly to, to achieve that goal. Uh, the Artemis plan that we released today is largely focused on phase one, which culminates in a landing 
of the first woman and the next man on the moon by 2024, as, of course, as well as bringing them home safely. Um, our long-term lunar goal includes establishing the first sustainable presence on and around the moon uh, by the end of the decade. So phase one is all about getting to the moon quickly, uh, and we go quickly to retire as much as possible. A lot of the political risk uh, from programs that take too long and cost too much, so we're going quickly. Um, but we're also not missing, you know, the, the big picture, which is we're going to the moon to stay. So we're building a sustainable program uh, for uh, the end of the decade. In order to achieve this, of course, um, it's going to require an all-of-NASA approach. And, um, of course, on the phone we've got the Space Technology uh, Mission Directorate, we've got the Science Mission Directorate, the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. But it's going to require an all-of-NASA approach and, of course, um, what we've learned recently um, about the science on the moon is, is quite stunning. The fact that there is rust on the moon, um, of course, um, and, and so many other new discoveries within the last 10 years, the water ice, uh, volatiles for um, life support, air to breathe, water to drink, um, and in fact, rocket fuel, which is, of course, the hydrogen in hundreds of millions of tons on the south pole of the moon. Um, so, so I think it's important to recognize that we have the Artemis plan um, that we have we have now published it, released it to to Congress, released it to the public, and um, and we'll we'll be uh, happy to answer questions here um, in a few minutes. But for now, I'd like to turn it over to Kathy Leaders, the Associate Administrator in charge of Human Exploration and Operations at NASA. Kathy. Thank you, Jim. It is really my pleasure to be here. You know, I can't believe it has been three months since my announcement as COAA. Um, and I'm very excited that we are heading into our exciting Artemis missions campaign. You know, when I came in as COAA, I emphasized how exploration's a team sport. And it's also very, um, it's been an amazing part of me being on this team, and you'll hear from a few other members of the, the team as they're coming up and, and with what we're accomplishing across the agency. You know, right now, we are getting ready for the core stage, like Jim mentioned before. It's going through its final sets of checkout. Um, it's what we call the wet dress, and then coming up and, and doing the hot fire um, in the next few months. But like, like Jim talked about, this is the last piece, the last part of the crew transportation system that will be making its way down to the Cape where the other pieces are waiting for it. And is it going to be very exciting to see the hardware at the Cape getting ready for our uncrewed demonstration mission uh, next fall uh, 2021. I think folks don't realize that that mission will be over a month long and we'll be checking out all the critical systems and, and, and it will also be flying 17 payloads, five of which are international. Another example of the team sport. That mission will be buying down the risk for our next exciting mission, which will be Artemis II, our crew demonstration, a 10-day mission that's going to be really um, putting our new capability through its paces and making sure um, that all the critical systems are working and, and doing uh, 
checkouts on the demonstration mission, including doing a prox operations checkout. The team right now is getting all the pieces of that vehicle ready to go fly and be ready for that mission in 2023. And all that work then gets us ready for Artemis three, which as Jim was saying before, we'll be bringing together our proven, then proven crew transportation system and our new human landers. Our human landing system program has been hitting every single milestone in their path for bringing the first woman and the next man on the moon by 2024. So we are in the process right now of waiting to get the final solutions from our different providers and moving towards our final awards for the providers next spring. We continue to work and collaborate across our NASA directorates and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what Jim Reuter will be saying out of the STMD. Jim? Yeah, thanks, Kathy, and thank you, Jim. Um, you know, we like to say that technology drives exploration, and that's true here on Earth and in space. And I'm really excited as well to be part of this Artemis plan. Uh, we need to know how to precisely land on the moon, to mine and process resources, including water at the South Pole, build structures in the harsh environment of space out of local resources, power surface operations, and manage things like that pesky lunar dust. We're maturing these technology areas and more being our Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative. Our space tech team continues to develop and demonstrate the technologies identified in this plan to land, work, and live sustainably on the moon for the Artemis program. A couple examples. Via the NASA Tipping Point Partnership, we're working with Blue Origin to demonstrate precision landing technologies to enable exact and soft landings on the moon. A NASA-developed precision landing technology suite will be tested on board New Shepard very soon. Just stay tuned for news on that. The flight path for the suborbital launch is relevant to lunar landings and will provide NASA a unique opportunity to mature sensors and algorithms for potential use on Artemis missions. And then in early 2021, we will be launching a CubeSat to the same cislunar orbit and in front of the orbit targeted for the Gateway. The Capstone CubeSat, which stands for Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment, represents a rapid, low-cost lunar flight demo. These are just a couple examples of technologies we're demonstrating in the near future. And of course, what we're doing is we're planning to send dozens more technology experiments, including new spectrometers and regolith drills to the surface of the moon on a commercial moon delivery initiative led by our science colleagues. But I don't want to steal Thomas's thunder, so I'll turn over to, 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 to Thomas to talk to him a, a little bit more about that. Thomas is the Associate Administrator for Science Mission Directorate. Thomas? Hey, Jim, thanks so much, and uh, Kathy, couldn't be more excited to have you on board. It's great to be here, and uh, as Jim Bridenstine said earlier, is going to the moon involves the science community, both within the United States and globally. It's really an exciting time to be part of this new future we are building together, and in science, we're helping to lead. Even with all we've learned and continue to learn about the moon uh, through the samples returned by Apollo astronauts and data from our satellites, 
like the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, the moon still holds many science mysteries and opportunities. The moon is, frankly, a cornerstone for understanding our solar system, especially measuring its absolute age. We can also learn about how the sun has changed over time, especially the high-energy particle output of the sun, and about the history of our planet, and use the moon as a platform for unique scientific observations, even looking back in time to the early phase of the universe. Jim Bridenstine briefly mentioned our Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative's CLIPS. Uh, we highlight uh, it in the plan as well, and it's an innovative new paradigm to support our lunar return through delivery services from industry. Uh, ahead of the human return, we're working with American companies to robotically land on the moon up to eight times through 2024. We're going to continue sending two deliveries to the surface of the moon each year, beginning next year through 28. And the national and commercial partners are getting excited about these lunar deliveries by U.S. companies as well. And the market is growing, which has really been one of the things uh, that we've been looking forward to seeing as part of this uh, very exciting experiment we're running. Already identified, we've already identified many of the science and technology payloads and awarded task orders for half of those flights. In 21, uh, astrobotic intuitive machines will both launch in the fall as well as the first two private American companies to demonstrate the ability to land on the moon and deliver our payloads and those of other customers. In 22, mass and space system will make the first delivery to the lunar pole a really starting a crescendo for the poll, of course, uh, culminating in 24, because in 23, Astrobotic will deliver Viper to the South Pole, our water hunting and mapping robot that is so critical for us to inform ourselves about these uh, really uh, unique places uh, that, as of yet, we have not uh, seen. We also have a second task uh, out for bid uh, for uh, uh, additional technologies of the type that Jim Reuters just talked to you about. We in NASA Science will not miss any opportunity to do great science as part of the Artemis program, whether it is in small satellites of Artemis 1 that Kathy, you talked about, space weather instrumentation on Gateway, both for scientific exploration, but uh, with our partners to pilot space weather predictions in support of astronaut safety, we're there. We also recently established a team to identify and prioritize surface science activities for crew as part of the Artemis 3 mission. We are working closely with human exploration to do that and to maximize science as well during this first week-long expedition in 24. We all look forward to and we're building towards. So yes, robotic and human exploration are going hand-in-hand, hand, and together with the technology engine that, that Jim Reuters is, are talking about. We're excited about the science we will conduct on the moon and ahead of the human return and throughout this decade as part of this Artemis program, and also sending scientists back to the lunar surface and continue this amazing exploration uh, that, that, for many of us, we primarily know out of the history books. So with that, I think we're ready for questions, Bettina. What do you think? Thank you, Thomas. I think we are. So thank you for all that great information from everybody. And as Thomas said, we are ready for questions. To get into the question queue, please press star one on your phone. In about an hour after we conclude this, you can listen to a replay of this teleconference by dialing 1-800-348-3532 and using the passcode 102120. So, First now, uh, with that, we're going to take our first question. Operator, what, uh, can you please put in our, our first question for our reporter? 
The first question is from Irene Klotz from Aviation Week. Your line is now open. Thanks very much. Um, so my question, I think, is for Jim. Um, trying doing a little multitasking while you all were talking, and it looks like the Phase One budget request overall is going to be nearly twenty-eight billion dollars. Um, can you just address the uh, likelihood of getting that kind of funding with all the other things going on and also the um, potential impacts right off the bat if uh, NASA, like the rest of the government, goes into a continuing resolution for, um, I guess it'll be starting next week. Yeah, absolutely, Irene. Thank you for the question. Um, first of all, the $28 billion, uh, that represents the costs that are that are associated for the next four years uh, in the Artemis program to land on the moon uh, by 2024. So um, SLS funding, Orion funding, um, the, uh, the human landing system, um, and, uh, of course, um, you know, the, the spacesuits, all of those things that are part of the Artemis program are included in that in that twenty eight billion dollars. Um, as far as getting the funding necessary uh, to to achieve the twenty twenty four landing, I will tell you right now we are excited about the fact that we, for the first time since nineteen seventy two, are in fact funded for a human landing system that has never happened since nineteen seventy two. Um, we've got three separate providers under contract um, to help us develop that that landing system that will that will land on the moon by twenty twenty four. The budget request uh, that we have before the House and the Senate right now includes uh, a $3.2 billion for 2021 for the human landing system. Um, it is critically important that we get that $3.2 billion. Um, the bill that passed the House of Representatives for the appropriations, that bill had $600 million for a human landing system. Um, so I want to be clear. Number one, we are exceptionally grateful to the House of Representatives um, that in a bipartisan way they have determined um, that, that funding a human landing system is important. And that's what that $600 million represents. It is also true that, um, that we are asking for the full $3.2 billion. Um, and what I anticipate will happen um, is that there will be a, a, you know, a short-term CR um, before October 1st. Uh, that short-term CR would expire sometime maybe before Christmas, at which point there will be some kind of omnibus appropriation bill. Um, our, our request is today, as it always has been, which is we need that $3.2 billion for the human landing system. Um, and I think that that, that if, if we can have that done before Christmas, we're still on track for a 2024 moon landing. Um, we have also seen these kind of continuing resolutions uh, go, you know, a short-term CR that is supposed to expire, you know, before the end of the year turns into another CR that expires, you know, in March. Um, if we go to March without the, the $3.2 billion, um, you know, it, it becomes more difficult. I would, I would argue um, that, that, we're still, that we're still within the realm of, of possibility uh, because we, we do have, you know, we do have our work underway right now. 
if we go beyond March and we still don't have the human landing system funded, it becomes increasingly more difficult. Um, so our request is, and, and we want this to be a bipartisan um, a bipartisan effort, which which we have had a lot of success in achieving. Um, we, we would like to see the $3.2 billion for the human landing system funded um, at the earliest possible opportunity. Um, and, and the best we can see that happening right now would be um, with an omnibus appropriations bill uh, sometime, you know, before the end of the year. So that's, that's where we are on that, Irene. Did that answer your question? Yes, thank you. The next question is from Stephen Clark from Space Flight Now. Your line is now open. Hi, this is Stephen Clark from Space Flight Now. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, mine's for uh, Administrator Brian Stein. Last week you uh, hinted um, that NASA might look at equatorial landing sites for um, Artemis, perhaps even Artemis 3, even mentioning the possibility of going back to an Apollo site. Um, is that being discussed or, or, or traded within NASA right now? And if so, uh, what's the motivation for doing so? Or do you foresee that happening, that decision coming down the pike sometime before 2024? Thanks. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, I've seen a good bit of chatter about this in social media. Um, to be clear, uh, we're going to the South Pole, and th there is there is no talk or trades or anything else about anything other than going to the South Pole at NASA. Um, it came up in, in a league meeting, uh, which is the Lunar Exploration um, Advisory Group. Uh, somebody asked me about, you know, wouldn't it be a good idea to go to an Apollo legacy site or something like that? And and um, and and the way I answered, look, that, that where we're going is the South Pole. That's 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 where we're going. And I think I said something like, um, you know, if if it were to be determined that we couldn't get to the South Pole, then that would be something to look at. Um, and from that, somebody tweeted something, and then it became. It became a story. Uh, but no, right now we have no plans for Artemis three for anything other than the South Pole. And to, to kind of double down on that, if you look, you know, we've got mast and space systems going to the South Pole in 2022. We've got the Viper landing uh, to, to do, you know, um, activities at the South Pole to, to include characterizing the, the lunar water ice. Um, and then we've got the, the Artemis three landing uh, in 2024 with humans on the South Pole. Um, we're going to the South Pole. Um, there's no discussion of anything other than that. Um, I just I think I think what I did is I tacitly acknowledged that going to a historic site would be kind of cool. Um, but but that's pretty much the extent of any discussions I've been a part of. Thank you, Jim. Uh, operator, what is our um, our next question? The next question is from Eric Berger from Ars Technica. Your line is now open. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for doing this. Um, uh, Kathy, I think you said that you're moving toward final HLS awards next spring. Um, can you talk about, in an ideal world, 
you know, how many of those you would carry forward? Obviously, you have three now. I think you may be considering a leader-follower aspect, like a prime candidate for 2024 and a follower. But maybe you could talk about, you know, whether there will be a true down-select next spring um, or whether you'd like to carry all three forward. And then let's say you do get, like, 600 or a billion dollars. Like, would that force you to automatically go down to one? Thanks very much. So, you know, the goal would be to have, in a perfect world, to have competition. We would really like to maintain competition. Um, you know, we found in other commercial endeavors having somebody to 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 be looking at and, and competing it against in, in some way or, or also having redundancy in that way would be um, is, is advantageous. Um one, you know, I, I think it's one of the important parts of what Jim was saying about about the CR and understanding our funding is that we are getting our final proposals from each of the providers right now, and it would also be nice to be able to look at different opportunities for different financing and what that would mean for us at about the same time. So the good thing is I think we'll have both sets of data in that um, February, March timeframe for us to be able to, to lay in our plans and strategies going forward. And are you considering a prime for 2024 and a backup for later or do you not have that formulated yet? We don't have that formulated yet. We'd have to, you know, we're really counting on looking at what each of the providers and what they're, what, how they're proposing their strategies too, which will also um, be enabled by that, right? Thank you, Kathy. And thank you, Eric, for your question. Um, our next question will come from Marsha Dunn from AP. Yes. Hi. Um, for the probably for Mr. Bridenstine, for the commercial crew program, um, to put a human face on it, you pick your crew well in advance, and so I'm wondering when will the moon crews be um, identified? When will you be picking? When will they be identified? And um, how do you plan to go to go about picking picking these people? Thank you. Yeah, so, um, you know, the the way NASA usually goes about picking a crew, it, it's usually about two hours, or I said two hours, it's usually about two years prior to the mission. Um, you know, I, I think it's important that, um, that we start identifying the Artemis team earlier than that even. Um, primarily because I think it will it will serve as a source of inspiration for a lot of people um, to 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 see you know the team um, that will that will be you know going going to the moon this time sustainably um, and and so I I would like to I would like to announce you know an Artemis cadre earlier rather than later. Um, but at this point in time, we don't we don't have um, we don't have those astronauts identified at this point, um, and we don't have any plans to make an announcement at this point. Thank you, Marcia, for that question. Next, we'll go to Bill Harwood. Bill. Hey, thanks, Bettina. Marcia just asked my question, so I'll pass it on. Thanks. 
Well, that was fast. Thanks, Bill. Um, next, we're going to go to Ivan. Um, Ivan, are you live? Yes, thanks so much. Can you please compare uh, Artemis 3 and uh, Apollo 14, for instance, in terms of how much science uh, they'll be able to do uh, on the surface of the moon, especially if you only manage to do two moonwalks, which is apparently a scenario. And uh, since you highlight cleanup, you highlight uh, cleanup in the plan, can you elaborate on what that will uh, entail and whether that includes bringing back any waste? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just tell you the the science that we would be we would be doing is really very different than anything we've done before. We have to remember during the Apollo era, we we thought the moon was bone dry. Now we know that there's lots of water ice, and we know that it's at the South Pole. So the big thing that that we want to do is we, we want to understand how that water ice is embedded in the regolith. We want to see if there might even be pure water ice in the cold traps. You know, we found on, on Mars, we found absolutely pure water ice. And, and it would be interesting to see if there's something like that on the moon. Um, the, and then, of course, trying to understand, you know, how, how do we separate the regolith from the water ice? You know, those, those, kind, of, those kind of things, if, if, if it needs to be done. So really, that's the, those are those are kind of the higher priority activities. Um, but also, we we are on the south pole of the moon, so there's going to be there's going to be a lot that we that we learn. I mean, as I said earlier, we just learned a couple weeks ago that the moon actually has rust, which means there's got to be humidity and there's got to be oxygen, um, and and these are things that we didn't we didn't know until just recently. So. Um, there's a lot of science to be done on the moon. I will also tell you, you know, we go back to the Apollo era. One of the first experiments was was a heliophysics experiment where we were measuring the the subatomic charged particles coming from the sun. You know, um, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for for those kind of experiments. Um, and then and then characterizing the regolith on the South Pole and, and seeing what how the materials might be different than at the equatorial regions. So these are just some some ideas and concepts. Uh, you know, we, we put out um, for proposal from from uh, the science community what people would like to do on the South Pole. We've got a lot of great papers back. I know uh, the science mission directorate at NASA is evaluating what those different proposals are. Um, and they'll be making a determination as to, you know, the direction that we go. So probably, Thomas, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to, to, to comment on, on on what, you know, the direction that you think we should go from a science perspective on the South Pole of the Moon is. Um, I think you said many of the things that I was going to say, uh, Jim. Uh, let me just tell you, uh, uh, we're uh, also from the science community anxiously awaiting the uh, return of the documents that Cassie talked about, because uh, we're interested in, in engaging with uh, these providers. Remember, that's a little bit different than how it was done uh, in the Apollo program, in which, uh, you know, there was a single kind of government-focused, uh, of course, with contractor-enabled government-focused uh, effort. Uh, we do believe that there's important science that can be done, and actually we're in the process of really uh, looking at these things, just like Jim said, and prioritizing uh, what is there. Uh, without a doubt, uh, bringing samples to uh, terrestrial labs is one of the things we'd really like to achieve. 
uh, because of all the reasons that Tim said and then some, right? It's just uh, uh, just really one of those uh, precious materials kind of in our reach that we'd like to have in our labs. Uh, but there's other uh, experiments that we're uh, thinking about. In fact, we've uh, uh, entered uh, some kind of uh, collaborative uh, stance with uh, even international partners uh, to really uh, figure out together with our uh, U.S. science community what we can uh, what what can uh, be uh, put at the surface? Perhaps we also leave some things behind. And uh, Kathy, I'm going to uh, turn over to you about bringing waste back. That's not in my bailiwick. Go ahead. Well, I think uh, part of one of the reasons um, we're doing some of these missions is to go figure out how to do them differently. Um, and so, like. Uh, Thomas was saying, we've got to go see the strategies for each of these providers and, and how they are planning on kind of meeting our requirements. So, um, you know, we'll be following along and evaluating and, and understanding what our final what our final providers will be and how they'll be dealing with the particular challenges that we'll have going forward. So I, I guess um, the, as far as the, the science, we, you know, we haven't made a final determination as to what science we will do on Artemis three. But I will tell you, I'm I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited about what what the possibilities are. Um, so I'll I'll just give you some examples. You know, we think about very low frequency, you know, radio waves that are coming from deep space that could um, enable us to, to see, um, you know, what, you know, the universe in, in ways that we, we haven't even imagined before. Um, th those very low frequency radio waves um, on the, this isn't going to be for Artemis three, but um, on the far side of the moon could, could, um, could help us understand a lot about the early universe. Um, we think about on the, on the optics side, um, you know, the moon is an extremely stable platform. Think of it as a very stable spacecraft, <laughs> uh, which means when we, when we think about planets that are orbiting other stars and how they can eclipse those stars. And we see, we see the stars, you know, dip in the amount of light that they emit. Um, we can actually see very, very, very faint dips in that light from a stable platform on the surface of the moon. In other words, we could actually increase uh, more rapidly our discovery of exoplanets around other stars from using simple optics on on the surface of the moon um, in, in a way that you couldn't do from a spacecraft um you know, in orbit around the Earth, just because it's not nearly as stable. So I think, I think when you think about the heliophysics, you know, understanding subatomic charged particles coming from the sun, when we think about and how important that is to human spaceflight in general, we've got to get really good at predicting and protecting against coronal mass ejections and solar flares. We think about um, the astrophysics perspective with very low frequency radio antenna and, and even optical sensors. Um, and then we think about the value of the regolith itself and the water ice and the volatiles that are embedded in the regolith. Um, there's, I think that there's, there's more opportunity to get more science now 
than there ever was on Apollo 14, for example. Um, but the question is just, it's about, it's what is the, what is the, what is the, the, the amount of science we can get per dollar and maximizing that. And of course, that's what Thomas Zerbukin and his team are going to be focused on as we come up with the, the, the experiments that we can do on the moon. And not, not just experiments, but the science. Thank you all. Um, we're going to go to our next question. It is from Jeff South, Space News. <clears throat> Thanks for taking my uh, question. Um, I'm curious how the gateway fits into this. I know it's not particularly emphasized in the report, and it looks like that you know you're considering having Orion dock directly with the uh, commercial human lander for the Artemis three mission. Um, if gateway doesn't play a big role in this first phase, is there any discussion about deferring work on the initial gateway mo uh, modules to free up resources for the other elements? of Artemis and then get gateway up after Artemis 3 for those later missions. Thanks. So, Jeff, I'll take the first crack and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Kathy. But we, we do anticipate that the power and propulsion element and HALO will be will be available, you know, by 2024. Um, and so it is definitely an option that is available to the commercial human landing system providers. Um, and, of course, they're they're working through kind of what their strategies are to, to get to the moon even as we speak. Um but you're absolutely right. Um, it's it's we're not making it a requirement, um, and and you know different people can propose different ways uh, to to go about making that 2024 moon landing happen. So, uh, Kathy, I'll I'll turn it over to you for further comment. Uh, you're exactly right. I mean, Jeff, what we're trying to do is we're trying to like Jim talked about at the beginning. Um, obviously, we're focused on getting to the moon in 2024, but we're also focused on having a sustainable lunar architecture that allows us to go to the South Pole, but then gives us opportunities to maximize and use a, a multiple platforms to be able to do multiple missions going forward because we're investing... The, the nation's investing in these capabilities, right? So we want to make sure that the, the investment in these designs can then be used to conduct multiple missions. Um, and so having the lunar platform, uh, orbiting platform, allows us then to have potential other flexible uses of the human landing systems going forward. And so we are keeping a sustainable portfolio going, um, but we'll have to, as we get our um, direction, our appropriations direction, we'll be laying in the, the plan. But right now we are, we're charging on all cylinders right now, um, laying the framework for us to be able to use these new capabilities that are coming online over the next few years. A very exciting time for us. And, and Jeff, um, as, as you and others are formulating your stories, I would encourage you um, to, to, um, to make sure people understand <laughs> that uh, the gateway um, is critically important for the sustainable mission that we have in front of us. So, so 
we don't, you know, we've got two efforts. One is to get to the moon by 2024 and then to be sustainable by the end of the decade. And, and we, I think the gateway is that is, 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 is essential to that sustainable effort so that we can have human landing systems that are re, re, reusable, that are serviceable. Um, and, and it's also important um, to make sure that our international partners understand the level of commitment, commitment that we have to the gateway because they're a key part of helping us develop the gateway. And that reduces the cost to the American taxpayer. Um, so, so we're grateful to our international partners for their collaboration on the Gateway. Um, and then maybe Thomas uh, Zerbukin, if, if if you could, maybe you could say a few words about how we we can use the Gateway for science as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you uh, glad you called me uh, on this. Uh, so the first thing, of course, uh, we already did, uh, uh, Jeff and others, is is we uh, put the we started the Hermes suite, which is. Uh, really a uh, space weather related suite. Uh, what's exciting about this uh, for us is not just measuring space weather in the orbit of Gateway. Uh, by the way, it's a really interesting orbit. There's specific signs we've actually never been able to do in, uh, so far uh, you know, uh, in the magnetosphere and uh, the uh, solar wind interaction with the, with the terrestrial plasmas that are in, happening in that vicinity and beyond. Uh, the other uh, reason, though, uh, we're excited about this is because the integration of that instrumentation and uh, the software that goes with it, assimilation software, really helps us pilot the use of such space weather uh, instrumentation and assimilation sense, you know, for, for um, times in the future uh, when we're even more away from the Sun-Earth line, which is the only place we really have done space weather predictions is for the Earth. And, and so for us, really learning how to do that is, is really critical. Uh, as we go forward, there's more signs that we know about that uh, uh, there's tremendous excitement in various uh, communities uh, about. And, uh, and uh, as we go forward, uh, you know, uh, recall, of course, that biological and physical sciences is also um, in, uh, in the science mission directorate now. And uh, I know this community is particularly interested in uh, some of the experiments in that different space environment. It's really, truly different than the, the uh, space um, uh, station, where, of course, we've had uh, two decades of uh, 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 great uh, experience and experimentation. So, so there's a, a tremendous interest in that, um, uh, also on the inside, of course, of, of Gateway as much as uh, the outside as well, which I, I started with. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from Keith Cowing. Keith? Uh, this is Keith Cowing from NASAWatch.com uh, for Jim Bridenstine. When Gateway was first announced, lunar landings were still planned for 2028, and then last year things got moved up by four years to 2024. Yet, after more than a year, NASA is not exactly sure, this is a follow-up to Jeff's question, what Gateway will be or will not be used for and when these things will happen, especially with regards to Artemis III. Now, you bring the term sustainable into virtually every answer. Sustainable means different things to different people. To some, it's funding. To others, it's engineering. And right now, the House seems to think it means funding. And to others, the more you delay Gateway, the more people are wondering whether you even need it. So can you tell me when, like a date, when will you exactly have it down in a plan, uh, how Artemis III will be done, and whether yes or whether no, the Gateway will be involved? Yeah, so, yeah, again, you know, um, 
this is this is an important distinction between how we're doing things now and how we've done them in the past. So in the past, you know, NASA basically wrote the requirements and designed the capability and then we turned to contractors to build what we had what we had basically designed with the requirements. So what we're doing now is we're turning to industry and we're allowing them to very innovatively um, come up with creative solutions that are, you know, unique. Um, and and be, and because we've done that, we have we have we have now right now under contract three very distinct lunar landing systems um, that are are widely different in their approach. <laughs> um, and and some of them. You know, we'll consider using Gateway and others, maybe not so much. What we don't want to do, because look, what we're trying to do is we're trying to learn the business model that, that is going to work. And and we've done that with commercial resupply and now commercial crew. And we think about the success that we've had with, with the Crew Dragon, for example, on, an, on, a, on a Falcon 9 rocket. And you've heard me say some of these things before, but it's important to note, you know, the idea that we would have a composite overwrap pressure vessel inside of a liquid oxygen tank is not something NASA would have done on its own. The idea that we would have supercooled liquid oxygen to get more specific impulse out of a rocket is not something NASA would have done on its own. The idea that we would have nine rocket engines on on a on a rocket um, the size of a Falcon 9 is not something that NASA probably would have done on its own. The idea that you would have integrated, you know, the, the launch abort system into the normal propulsion system is not something maybe NASA would have done on its own. But when you turn to a commercial provider and you say, hey, here's what we're trying to achieve. How would you go about doing this? And then they go and come up with solutions. And then NASA's job is to do basically test and validate, verify the engineering, try to make it fail, and ultimately you know, certify the vehicle. Um, what we have found is that, that that's a really good model. And so... You know, I, I, I hear folks say, you know, they, they want NASA to be prescriptive. And, and I'm telling you that is we have to we have to fight to make sure that we're not being prescriptive um, because there's going to be our goal. Our goal as an agency is to be a customer, one customer of many customers. And we want numerous providers that are competing on cost and competing on innovation. It's that fundamental piece, that innovative piece. That um, that when we design the business model that we use, that ultimately will enable this virtuous cycle of continuous improvement, that will enable the sustainability piece. And yes, there it is. I'm using it again. We need to be sustainable. Um, so, so I, I really think um, it would be premature for me to to say how our commercial providers are going to go to the moon. I know Kathy and her team are working side by side with our commercial human landing system providers day in and day out um, to help refine and plan um, their eventual, you know, proposals. Um, but I think we as an agency have to fight the urge um, to, to be prescriptive with them um, unless, unless there's a reason, if there's a reason, then yes, let's, let's go do it. But, and, and by the way, we did that with commercial resupply and with commercial crew. Um, when we saw problems that were not being addressed, we got very directive and prescriptive. Um, but I don't think we're, we're there yet um, for, 
for the 2024 moon landing. I, I don't I don't see it being necessary at this point. Kathy, I'll let you answer and correct me on anything I might have said incorrectly. <laughs> oh, no, I absolutely agree. It goes back to how do you leverage, right? How do you maximize? How do you multiply? And the way you do that is by allowing as much degrees of freedom possible, right? And that's that's what that's what opens aperture and brings new solutions to the table. And um, you're exactly right, Jim. You know the things you brought thought about we we wouldn't have done that way, but but it was through us being open to new solutions that enabled new options for us to be able to accomplish our goals. And so we are, we don't have all the answers and we are welcoming industry to come in and help us answer, bring answers to the big problems we have. And that's why we do what we do is to be able to go do this and to have us all learn as we're moving to accomplish these missions. We want new ideas being brought to the table. We are, we are, we are open to new ideas to help us gain and be able to leverage the investment that we're making in this. Thank you, Kathy. Um, just um, on this um, topic, talking about sustainability, I wanted to bring Jim Reuter quickly into the conversation. Um, Jim, what does sustainability mean to technology advancements that STMD is working on today as we talk about Artemis? Yeah, uh, thanks, Bettina. Um, when we look at uh, sustainable presence, what we try to get ourselves in a position by the end of the decade that what we can do is a couple things. Uh, one is that we've enabled platforms and, infra and, and infrastructure, if you will, so that a commercial or another entity can carry on uh, past the point where we've developed. Um, and, uh, and another uh, way we look at it is um, since since uh, the moon is a great proving ground for us for Mars, is have we done the activities that we um, are planning to do here that can really help us to get to Mars? And so uh, so it's 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 things like um, have we enabled enough of a uh, in situ resource utilization uh, development so that we can understand how to how to capture and uh, ice water ice from from the lunar surface. Um, and use that for propellants or life support or other activities. Have we and the other volatiles that are in regolith and stuff? Um, have we overcome and understood dust mitigation? Uh, can we operate in the extreme environments that are that are places where we really want to venture um, and can have access to those? And and can, have we started you know living off the land and developing things for excavation construction? And Gateway is a great platform also for a couple things that we kind of learn how we're operating in space. Um, and um, it's a it's a great next step for things like autonomous operations in the in the in the environment of, of the moon, uh, learning how to operate things when when crew is not present or we have less ground interaction, we have less uh, logistics capability. So to us, it's it's a platform that we're trying to prepare for a condition when we get to the late 2020s. Thank you, Jim. Our next question comes from Jackie Waddles of CNN. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, my question is for Administrator Bridenstine. Um, I was just curious. I know it's been a while since we talked in depth about budget, so snowballing off Irene's question. I was curious if you could preview for us, you know, how you're going to make the case to the Senate subcommittee and to Congress more broadly, um, you know, why 
timeline is important and and why you think it's important to meet that, you know, given, you know, the broader spending around the pandemic, et cetera. Yeah, so, I mean, the the history of NASA is, you know, billions of dollars being spent on programs that get canceled. <laughs> and, you know, we look at the, the vision for space exploration of the early 2000s, which was the plan to go uh, to the moon and on to Mars uh, with the Constellation program. We go back to the 1990s. We had the, the Space Exploration Initiative. Again, it was a plan to go to the moon and on to Mars, and, and it got canceled. Well, the, there, there's, there's, there's a number of different risks when you deal with, with human spaceflight. Um, NASA is really, really good at dealing with the technical risk. We have no challenges um, you know, developing the technology and the capability to get to the moon and on to Mars. The challenge that we have is 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 the the political risk the the programs that that go too long um, that cost too much and that uh, end up you know getting cast you know cast out you know later you know um, you know later in the development program so to 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 save money and to reduce political risk we want we want to go fast um, and yeah we put a very aggressive timeline. Uh, 2024 is an aggressive timeline. Um, is it possible? Yes. Um, do, does everything have to go right? Yes. Uh, so, so we're, we're, we are targeting that, um, right now to, to, to achieve that goal. Um, so, so I, I would say that, um, that the reason we go fast is number one, the longer a program and a lot of people don't understand this, but when you when you take a program and you and you and you spread it out with you know flat budgets, it actually costs a whole lot more than if you allow the program to develop under its normal development cycle, which is you know normally a, you know the, the shape of a bell curve. So so by by allowing, for example, the human landing system uh, to be accelerated, we actually drive down costs. We make it more sustainable. Um, and we we enable you know we we enable it to be achieved. Um, you know, my goal is to make sure that we can get to the moon by 2024 and that we're sustainable by the end of the decade. And and I think um, I think that we're on track to to achieve those items. Thank you, Jim. Our next question will be Joy Ulette Reuter. Hey, uh, thanks for doing this. This question is for anyone, really. Um, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the progress with the lunar surface uh, spacesuits and um, whether management and development of those suits will stay in-house at JSC or if NASA plans to contract that out at any point. Thanks. So, Kathy, uh, take that. Yeah. Yeah. It's all yours. I got it. Okay. So, I actually think... Uh, the development of the the spacesuit is 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 a really a good story because um, we've been using our multiple platforms station the need for upgrade suits on station the need for um, suits that support a lunar platform and then surface suits and we've been individually and gradually working that development over many years. Um, 
And um, and so the team's actually in the process of putting together a prototype um, that will be able to, at, at, in a short period of time, be able to try out first on from a station platform perspective and be able to check it out. Um, and then um, have actually taken a lot of the lessons learned that we learned from the um, lunar or from the Apollo missions and mobility and other kinds of things, and then are also using that as on on in different kinds of testing environments to to make um, to to check out the upgrades. So um, right now the goal is to continue to to build that in-house but and um, while we're going through the prototype process and working through and looking at upgrades and checking it out on on station um, but that doesn't mean that over a period of time as things are um, and we're we're able to evolve it that at some point in time it may go out for a, from a commercial procurement standpoint. But right now we're going to continue to keep it at the low levels and be able to advance the development in-house. Thank you, Kathy. Our next question comes from David Curley of Discovery. Thank you. Administrator, um, you mentioned uh, the funding hoping to get in December and March uh, becomes problematic. If you don't get it in March, uh, what are the scenarios? Push the date, give your picture about the program. Uh, I know you don't like to think about that, but what are you thinking? Um, well, uh, I can tell you that, um, it, I mean, it's, re it's, really, it's really simple. Um, you know, if, if Congress doesn't fund the moon landing program, then it, it won't be achieved. I mean, it's 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 really that simple. Now, I want to be clear: if they push if they push the funding off, our goal will be to get to the moon at the earliest possible opportunity. Speed is still of the essence, and sustainability follows speed. So, um, so you know, what I would tell you is, you know, if 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 they keep delaying the funding, um, we will go to the moon at the earliest possible opportunity. Thanks, Jim. Hello? Our next question. Oh, sorry. I, no, it's, it's all right. But I, I do, I do want to emphasize that. Um, you know, I, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm confident um, based on the communications I've had with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, um, House, House members and senators. You know, and I've done town halls with members of Congress with their constituents. Uh, virtual town halls these days. Of course, last August I was traveling the country, uh, but recently I've been I've been doing all these town halls virtually with members of Congress and senators on both sides of the aisle about the Artemis program. And I will tell you that there there's there is broad consensus that it is time to go to the moon sustainably, um, and and and. 2024 is achievable, and we're we're working towards that. And I, I just want to I want to be clear that um, I really think that when when the omnibus appropriation is complete, when that omnibus appropriation is complete, I really believe there will be 3.2 billion dollars for a human landing system. That could be at the at the end of the year, and it could be. Uh, in, in March, right, right now, what I'm what I'm seeing is it's going to be a short-term CR that expires at, at the end of the year, which um, 
which means I'm going to communicate as robustly as I can uh, that that we would like to see the the human landing system fully funded um, in in that in that appropriation at the end of the year. Okay, we're going to do one last question, and we're going to round this out with Marsha Smith. Thank you so much. And following up on that thread of what happens if you don't get the money, just in case you don't, since these are public-private partnerships, have you given any thought to or have you had any discussions with the companies to see if they might put in more of their own money since some of these companies are owned by very wealthy individuals? And, and what percentage are they putting in now? Is there a way to increase that percentage? So, Marcia, that's that's a wonderful point you're making. <laughs> um, and 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 by the way, a big reason that you know the 2024 moon landing is 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 possible is because companies have been thinking about this and they have been making their own plans and and investing their own resources. So, so the idea that with a public-private partnership. You know, the companies themselves could could actually step up to the plate in a in a bigger way. Um, that is something that needs to be seriously considered. Um, it's uh, you know it's yeah. You know, I, I, I certainly you know our goal is is to create the the plan that best optimizes our ability to land on the moon by 2024. Um, but uh, but. But certainly, you know, if, if the if the money doesn't materialize, could they could they do it with with their own resources? Um, I'll leave it to them to make that determination. Uh, but but Kathy, did you want to maybe have a comment on this? No, I mean the only thing I would add is, you know, that is absolutely within the ability for the companies to come in under, you know, the procurement option we have. So, so what I would say is we're really looking forward to seeing those proposals, right. And, and seeing the capabilities that are being proposed to us and the opportunities that they will provide for us. Like Jim said, you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen what cargo providers can do for us, and I've seen what industry has done with their crew capabilities. And I'm looking forward to see what industry will do with a human lander system proposal. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter, at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash SpaceQ.